You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. All right, so this morning we are in the sixth of 14 sermons in our series on 1 Peter. And the text that is before us is a transition point in Peter's encouragement to persecuted Christians. And it's also a passage with a lot of Old Testament imagery, allusions, quotations. And all of that is building on what we've already seen in the uh, verses 13 through 25 of chapter 1. So in order to better grasp what Peter is teaching us here and why that matters, we're first going to spend some time getting reoriented to the big picture of the letter, reminding ourselves of Peter's purpose and of his audience. And then we'll look briefly at these Old Testament allusions that Peter has been weaving through the first chapter, and we'll follow them to where they culminate in our text this morning. So I would really encourage you, if you haven't already, to have your Bible open before you this morning. So if you're an outlining kind of person, here's a way to think about where we're going. We're going to talk about two encouragements, two images, and two takeaways. Two encouragements, two images, two takeaways. The two encouragements, so here are just some words that you can tie things to. We're going to talk about witness and identity. The two signs, the two images we're going to look at, we're going to talk about living stones and a holy priesthood. And the two takeaways we're going to talk about are mouth and milk. I promise it'll make sense in the end. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet and it is a light to our path. And so, Spirit, we ask that the word that you have breathed out this morning would come and revive us. For our joy and for the joy of the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So it's good to remember that Peter is writing this letter to persecuted Christians. In fact, persecuted Christians that are spread all across the Roman province of Asia Minor. And we know this from several places in the letter where Peter tells us that these Christians are mainly converts to Christianity from paganism. They're not those who have grown up in Judaism and have come to embrace Jesus as Messiah. And while these Gentile Christians are clearly familiar with scriptures, one major reason why Peter is writing to them is to remind them that although God had revealed himself to ethnic Israel, his words were written down for them. And so as converts from paganism, the recipients of this letter are being harassed by their Greek and Roman neighbors because of their faith in Christ mainly because they refuse to participate in the kind of practices that their neighbors approve. In fact, if you look down into chapter 4, verse 4, you can see that these neighbors are surprised that the Christians have abandoned their debauched lives and, chapter 4, verse 14, even insult them for following Jesus. 
So apparently, Peter's non-Jewish audience is living in a culture of sexual liberation and fleshly indulgence that's not too dissimilar from our own day. Others are hostile towards them because of their faith in Christ. So, Peter is writing to encourage Christians. He's writing to encourage Christians who are facing hostility because of their faith and because of their obedience to the Lord. So how then does he encourage them? He encourages them in two ways, okay? In the second part of the letter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, and running all the way through chapter 4, verse 10, Peter is going to show how suffering, how our suffering provides a powerful witness to the goodness of Jesus. When we live in the power of our new life in Christ and we do good even when we are mocked and opposed, we show that Jesus is real. We show that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So good, in fact, that Jesus is not only worth dying for, he's worth living for. And when we live in joyful submission to Jesus' lordship, like Peter tells us in chapter 3, verse 15, we have opportunities to bear witness to the hope that we have in Jesus. So Peter teaches us, he encourages us, that suffering has a way of focusing our hope. It focuses our hope on the return of Jesus. That's the main message of the last part of the letter, which begins in chapter 4, uh, verse 11. Because what we believe about the future impacts the way, not only impacts, it determines the way that we live in the present, right? What we believe about the future determines the way that we live in the present. And so Peter tells us in chapter 4, verse 12, that when we consider the glory of Jesus' return, when we consider what we gain in him, we're empowered by his spirit to live in love even in the face of hostility. And Peter's already shown us in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, what that looks like. He gives us a preview of what he's going to tell us at the end of the letter. Look there in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in what? In praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Christ Jesus. The faith that holds on to Jesus through the fires of opposition will be praised by our King when He returns in glory. Friends, Jesus... This is what Peter's telling us. Jesus will bear witness to the tested genuineness of our faith. That's some pretty strong encouragement for those who are harassed for following Jesus. What we believe about the future in Jesus' return determines how we live in the present. 
So that's how Peter encourages us in the second part of the letter. Suffering provides this unique way of deepening faith and of providing encouragement, deepening our faith, and helping us to bear witness to the goodness of Jesus. And Kenny, Pastor Kenny is going to impact, uh, unpack that more next week. But the way that Peter encourages us and encourages non-Jewish believers in the first part of this letter is, be, is by reminding them and reminding us of our new identity. Right? Converts to Christianity the ones that Peter's writing to, they faced severe hostility from their Greek and Roman neighbors. In first century Roman culture, it was a personal and sometimes a civic offense to abandon Roman religion. And so trusting in Jesus cost these new Christians a lot. They were being betrayed and falsely accused by their neighbors, chapter two, verse 12. They were being intimidated by the provincial government, chapter 2, verse 15. They were being mistreated by their employers, chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Some newly converted women were even being disdained by their own husbands, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Leaving the Roman cult could cost you your livelihood. It could cost you your family. And it could even cost you your life. And so it was especially important for Gentile Christians to understand that what they stood to lose could not possibly compare with what they had gained in Christ. Because by faith in Jesus, they had become his heirs. His story was their story. His family was their family. In Jesus, they were no longer defined by their parentage or by their performance or by their popularity. They were identified with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They had a new identity and their hope was set on life, everlasting life with him. So in chapter one, verses 13 through chapter two, verse 10, Peter shows from the scriptures that non-Jewish believers have a new hope. They have a new family. They have a new identity as God's people. They are the true Israel of God. And he does this by taking six images from the Old Testament and applying them to these Gentile believers. We're gonna focus in just a minute on these last two, the two images I mentioned in the introduction. But I'm gonna briefly highlight the first four so we can trace that thread. We can see together how this develops in the letter. So Peter began the letter by identifying the Gentiles, the ones he's writing to, as chapter one, verse one, chosen and elect people. These these are terms used throughout the Old Testament for God's people, Israel. And so Peter is identifying non-Jewish believers in Jesus with the one nation among all the peoples of the earth upon whom God has chosen to set his affections. Peter wants us to see that those who are not part of ethnic Israel have become part of this family in Jesus Christ. And the first image that Peter alludes to in chapter one, verse 14, is the Exodus. So think with me through this. Just as Israel was called to leave their former life in Egypt 
and set their hope on God's deliverance in the land of promise, so also us, Gentiles, are to turn away from the passions of our former ignorance and to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed in the appearance of the Lord Jesus. Next, in verses 15 through 16 of chapter 1, Peter says that just as God's people were called at Sinai to live in holiness throughout the times of their sojourning, so also we are called to be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. See what he's doing here? Showing how their story and Israel's story connect, right? Third, while Israel was delivered to Passover from the angel of death by the blood of the sacrificial lamb in Exodus 12 through 15, Peter says here in chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, that we have been delivered, not from the angel of death, but from eternal condemnation. With, he says, not the blood of bulls or goats, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And not only that, but God has poured out through Christ on the Gentiles the new covenant promise that was given to Israel. The one that Jeremiah had told us about, such that we, non-Jewish converts, have been given a new heart. That's what Peter's talking about in chapter 1, verse 23. That we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. As we saw last week in Pastor Jonathan's message, in this new birth, we have been saved to love. And we, as Gentiles, can keep on loving to the end because we're rooted in the promise that is living and abiding. We can keep on loving because our hope is set on the one who will one day come in glory and reward the righteous. So, in other words, Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus have a new identity We are the people, the chosen people of God. And in so much as the exodus and the sojourns and the Passover and the promised new covenant were part of Israel's story, they're part of our story as well. And so the first encouragement, our identity as God's chosen people is what gives life to the second encouragement. We can bear witness amid suffering Because our future hope is sure. We belong to Jesus. Okay, so now, hopefully that background will help us see what happens here in our passage as it relates to these last two images. The two images in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, living stones and a holy priesthood. So not only have we been saved to love through the new birth, we have been united to the Lord Jesus by faith. Look at chapter two, verses four through five. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter reminds us, reminds his audience, that Jesus understands the insult, the harassment, the opposition. In fact, Jesus too was rejected by men. But such rejection couldn't touch his identity as chosen, as the, as the precious and chosen one of God. In fact, Peter goes on to show in verses 6 through 7 that Jesus' rejection only further highlights what the prophets foretold. That God's cornerstone would be rejected by authority, verse 7, and would become a source of offense for those who refuse to believe. But for those who would believe, the rejected stone would become the cornerstone. And not only the cornerstone, but the cornerstone where God's old covenant people and God's new covenant people would meet. So that in verse 6, Peter can say, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So Peter can say in verses 4 through 5 that as we come to him, as we come to Jesus, the living stone by faith, we too are living stones and we are being built up by God as a spiritual house. Under the old covenant, God dwelt among his people in the temple, though only the high priest could enter into his presence and even that only under very specific circumstances. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, he warned that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. Mark chapter 13, verse 2, for example. And that rather than, a dwelling, that rather than dwelling in a building constructed by men, that he would inhabit a new temple. The assembly of his people, born of the Spirit and united by faith. Listen to how Paul describes this. Listen to how Paul describes this reality in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. For through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So take a minute to drink that in. If you have believed the gospel, if you have turned away from yourself to find refuge in Jesus, the spirit of the Lord Jesus himself, the promised spirit, dwells enduringly in you. You are a living stone. And the middle passive verb in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, God, God is building you. God is building you up by his spirit 
into the very temple in which God's Spirit dwells. Friends, look around. Look at these stones. There's no life in these walls. In fact, this building was a performance hall before it became our home. It became a church when we moved in. Because you are the living stones. And God's, God is building us right now by his spirit. We are learning of his love, of his mercy, of his kindness, of his faithfulness, of his steadfastness. We are tasting his goodness. And by his spirit, we are learning how to love one another, how to bear with one another how to support one another in distress, how to comfort one another in grief, how to strengthen one another in weakness, how to see the beauty and the goodness and the glory of Jesus in all that he has done, in all that he has made, how to walk in the world in such a way that our lives point to the reality of Jesus. That's what's happening here. And it's an amazing calling, isn't it? We get to be the place where good things happen to bad people. We get to be the place where broken people find wholeness, where sorrowing people find comfort, where weary people find rest, where sinners find a savior. We get to be the place where Jesus gets lifted up and draws all people to himself. And Peter has a word for it. Look down in verse 7. He has a word for it. Honor. The honor. <laughs> we get to be part of this. The honor is for those, is for you who believe. And as if it couldn't get any better, Peter goes on. Not only are we living stones joined to Christ by faith and built by God's spirit into his place of dwelling, we are called to mediate God's blessing to the world. Look at the second image in verse 5. We are called, Peter says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now, under the Old Covenant, most of the priesthood's responsibility was related to regular worship, right? And while their work was often hard, Think about the challenges, for example, of the sacrificial system. It was joyful work, right? Priests received and celebrated offerings of thanksgiving when harvests were collected and when babies were dedicated and when God's people gathered to remember all that God had done in their history. They wrote and performed songs of praise. They were entrusted with the privilege of studying and teaching God's word. They would travel throughout the tribes, instructing God's people from the scriptures, helping them taste and see that the Lord is good. They had the exquisite joy of seeing others find hope and life in the God of Israel. But in the Old Covenant... Only one of Israel's tribes, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, was set aside for these happy responsibilities. And that's why this text in 1 Peter is so stunning. Now in Christ, all of God's people share this priestly identity. 
The cross and the resurrection of Jesus has made it possible for anyone who trusts in him to dwell in the presence of God. And the joys of the priesthood are yours. Peter unpacks this reality more in verse 9. Look there. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So in Exodus 19, verse 6, God told Moses that the people of Israel, the people were called to be a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. As an entire people, they were called to reflect the glory of the Lord to the nations. In other words, as a people, they were to function among the nations as the Levites functioned among the people of God, right? Inviting people to taste and see that the Lord is good. As a nation, Israel was to be a beacon in the dark, in a dark world of idolatry. Israel was called to mediate God's blessing to the world in the same way that the priesthood mediated God's blessing to the 12 tribes. But because of their inability to follow God's law, Israel largely failed in this glorious calling. Obedience to the truth and sincere brotherly love required something. It required a new covenant, a new heart. And this, Peter says in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, is what has transpired in the living and abiding word of Christ. We have been born again, saved from ourselves by God for others. And in the mystery of God's redemptive purposes, friends, you, you, you have been made to fulfill the commission given to God's people Israel. And your lives as ambassadors for Jesus' sake are the spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The church is called and commissioned It's transformed and empowered to mediate God's blessing to the nations. So those are the two images. Living stones, a holy priesthood. We, friends, are the chosen place of God's dwelling, a spiritual house, joined to Christ Jesus as living stones, And his spirit dwells enduringly in us. And second, we have been commissioned. Commissioned as a holy priesthood to share the best news in all the world with anyone who would believe. With anyone who would come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, so two encouragements, two images, now two takeaways. The first takeaway related to what we just said, right? That's the first of the two takeaways. In light of who you are in Christ, won't you open your mouth so that your neighbors might know 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. And worship is the purpose of the people of God. Look at verse 9. We are called, verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. We are, verse 10, once not a people, but now God's people. We were once those who had not received mercy, but now we have received God's mercy. Isn't that stunning? Who are we to receive such grace? This ragtag group of rebels and malcontents. We're the ones that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, has chosen to be his family. That's crazy. And so what's the only fitting response to this reality? What is it? With hearts of profound gratitude and amazement, we open our mouths in praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praises will continually be on my lips. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Because I sought the Lord, and the Lord heard me, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. And those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and the Lord saved him out of all his troubles. Taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good, happy. Happy is the man who takes refuge in him. So in light of our new hope, our new family, our new identity, how can we not invite others to share our joy? God has chosen to do his work, the happiest work in the world through you. And if we really believe this, it will change everything about us. That's the first takeaway, that we open our mouth. The second takeaway comes from the verses we haven't looked at, verses one through three. Verse two, in fact, contains the only command in this entire text. And Peter's Greek is challenging to smoothly translate. I think the ESV has done a great job in making it less awkward in English. But to show you how verse one and two relate, I wanna read it in the way that the grammar is structured and We'll see why this is important in a second. So verses one through three. Like newborn infants, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation, putting away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The English adjective here, spiritual, is the word logikon in Greek, which is from the noun logos. You, you, you can hear it, right? Which is the word for word. But the phrase, long for the pure wordy milk, that doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? It doesn't really work. And, and Peter uses the word spiritual, the Greek adjective 
for the word spiritual down in verse 5. It talks about us being a spiritual house, right? But here, he uses this other word for a reason. Consider for a moment what we've seen this morning. Peter has shown us that we have a new hope, a new family, a new identity. He has walked us from the reed seed to the resurrection, from the Passover to Pentecost, from Egypt to Easter. He has shown us from the scriptures given to Israel's prophets and delivered for us, right? His point is that we ought to be just as hungry for the fortifying, satisfying substance of the gospel as babies are for mother's milk. The only command in this text is right here. Long, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow up into salvation. The word is the way to wonder and worship. The word builds the muscles of our faith. It strengthens our resistance against sin. It fortifies our bones to bear up under suffering. And if we've been saved to love, the way that we put away all that is opposed to love, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, all envy and all slander, is by drawing our nourishment from the word the word who is himself the Lord of love. So, therefore, long, long for the pure milk of the word. Make it the staple of your diet. Here is where we see, here is where we taste and see that the Lord is good. And so, friends, in the midst of harassment and opposition, we have much to be encouraged by. Jesus has shown us his goodness. We have a new hope, a new family, a new identity. We are living stones being built into the spiritual house with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And he has made us a kingdom of priests commissioned to declare his praises. And so as we come to the table, consider finally what Peter would have us contemplate. Notice that he says, we long for the pure milk of the word if indeed we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We celebrate this table because we know that Jesus has delivered us from every fear. That he has redeemed us from every sin. And that when he comes, we won't be ashamed. But Peter isn't assuming that everyone has. And so, as the pastors come forward and and the band comes forward, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you are trusting this morning in the Lord Jesus, you're invited here. But if you haven't, would you take this time to consider who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Friend, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're suffering, no matter how far you feel from him this morning, he's calling you. He's calling you right now to find your rest in him. He laid down his life in death for your sin, and he was raised again in victory over the grave so that you might have life. And so if you don't yet know him this morning, let the bread and the cup pass by. 
but don't let this moment pass by. Now is not too late. Put your trust in him. Find refuge in him. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.